All right, welcome everybody. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute for uh, tonight's event, U.S. Debt and Millennials. Is Washington creating a lost generation? Uh, my name is Chip Bishop. I'm the director of student programs here at Cato. Um, and uh, I want to send a special uh, hi and uh, hello to our online audience. We have a couple hundred people tuning in from all over the world, actually. So uh, smile. You might be on camera, and they might be checking you out. So uh, welcome, everybody. Um, I work here uh, at Cato with uh, Cato on Campus. We host a lot of uh, these events. Um, we host internships. We have a website, catooncampus.org. Uh, which profiles uh, various research that you can use for personal or academic needs and also opportunities for uh, contests, events, scholarships, seminars, uh, and the like. Uh, feel free to check that out. Um, we're also putting together the uh, event series for the school year, which kicks off in September. So be following that. All the events, again, are, are broadcast online, so you can tune in no matter where you are. Um, and if you have any questions about that or any of our other programs, feel free to find me or other Cato staff up at the reception uh, afterwards. Um, so let me give you a little bit of context for today's event. Um, I started thinking about this event back in the spring. Uh, what was going to be uh, kind of the, the elephant in the room? What is something that is, is really big and pressing in politics uh, and particularly relevant to young people that people aren't really talking about much, at least in terms of young people? Uh, and it was at that time that we were worried about uh, you know, the government not being funded and uh, non-essential employees having to be furloughed. Um, passing continuing resolutions, whether it was going to be three days, two weeks, permanently. Uh, and people started panicking about that, and uh, I said, you know, this is it. So we planned this, and it uh, very conveniently fell a couple weeks after Washington blew up with this whole uh, debt ceiling debate. So I'm, I'm very glad to have a bunch of panelists uh, here who uh, are very esteemed in their fields. Uh, I started thinking, how, how are we going to convey these ideas to young people? And I said, well, if we find young people that write about these things every day, that's a pretty good bet. Um, so Dan is going to introduce them individually, but I wanted to say a personal thank you to all of our panelists for joining us here. It's uh, kind of a daunting task to come into the Cato Institute if you have ideas that might be a little different and uh, talk in front of a room full of people on a panel with people who might not agree with you. So I, uh, I thank them for their courage, and I look forward to the, uh, the uh, various ideas that they'll present. Um, I've asked Dan Mitchell to be the moderator today. He's a senior fellow here at Cato and a top expert on tax reform and supply-side tax policy. Uh, he's a strong advocate for the flat tax and international tax competition. Prior to joining Cato, he was a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the uh, Senate Finance Committee. He also served on the 1988 Bush-Quail transition team and was director of tax uh, and budget policy for Citizens for a Sound Economy. His articles can be found in such publications as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, Investors Business Daily, and the Washington Times. He's a frequent guest on radio and television and a popular speaker on the lecture circuit. He travels all over the world advocating tax competition and other economic issues. Uh, and he also produces a series of Economics 101 videos uh, with the uh, Center for Freedom and Prosperity. Uh, they profile a lot of young economists giving um, basic economic concepts in short video segments with um, with graphs, and it's, they're, they're actually very good, so I'd recommend that you check those out. Uh, Dan holds a bachelor's and master's um, degree in economics from the University of Georgia and a PhD in economics from George Mason University. Please uh, join me in welcoming him to give us an intro. Well, thank you, Chip. I guess the fact that I'm moderating instead of on the panel means that I'm not a young person, which uh, I find very insulting. 
I'm also a little uh, angry at Chip because I have to moderate, which means I can't really throw in my two cents. I care about these issues a lot, but I have to be behave and simply field questions and things like that. So I really owe you, Chip. Uh, I'm not sure what I'll give you. Uh, we do have, as Chip mentioned, a, a very timely and important issue. We have all sorts of big short-term uh, challenges, whether we're talking about debt limits or super committees or budget deficits, uh, government spending, tax policy, but we also have huge long-term issues, and this is where it probably really affects all of you uh, in an even bigger sense. What's going to happen with Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the entitlements that under current CBO projections are expected to push government spending at the federal level from about 24-25% of GDP up to anywhere ranging from 45 to 65% of GDP. CBO has a couple of different baselines, and you can just take your guesses which one you think uh, might be closer to the truth. But we have a giant change coming in America, and it's all of you who are going to be the taxpayers who are going to deal with that. Is America going to become a stable welfare state like Sweden? Is it going to become a dysfunctional welfare state like Greece? Or are we somehow going to change things and stop all that from happening? Uh, these, I expect, will be some of the issues that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, but I want to quickly introduce uh, our panelists. I'm not going to read the whole bio like Chip did. Uh, I assume uh, all of you will already know at least something about these panelists. We're going to start with Megan McArdle, who's senior editor at The Atlantic. She writes about uh, business and economics. She has a bachelor's degree in English literature from the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from the University of Chicago. I really am very envious of Megan because everything she writes, it seems, gets linked by Instapundit, which is how you really get a lot of publicity for your ideas. She writes a blog post. I had tea this afternoon. Instapundit links it. I spend hours on a blog post, and I'm lucky if I get one out of 100 uh, that get linked. So uh, whatever uh, Megan is doing, I want her to tell me what it is. Uh, then we're going to hear from uh, Matt Iglesias. He's a uh, fellow at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. He holds a BA in philosophy from Harvard University. He's an author. He's written Heads in the Sand, uh, published back in 2008. But I really think his secret uh, thing in life is that he's married to me. Why do I say that? Because no one has said so many mean things about me since my ex-wife. I'm dishonest. <laughs> I'm insane. I'm a self-parody. I'm extreme. Well, he's right on that one, uh, so I'll, I'll give him that. If he's a baseball player, that's batting 250, uh, which I guess keeps him in the major leagues. And then uh, our final panelist is Matt Mitchell. No relationship, unless he becomes rich someday, and then I'll tell him he's my uh, long-lost son. He's a research fellow at the Mercatus Institute at George Mason University, uh, PhD and MA uh, in economics from George Mason University. I, of course, like George Mason University. And a BA in political science and BS in economics from Arizona State University. All of our three panelists have been widely published, been on TV, on the radio, so I didn't want to read all that stuff. I thought we would just get right into it. Uh, they're all going to come up here, give 10 minutes of remarks. I'll do a little bit of coughing and fidgeting in my seat if I see them going over, uh, but since I introduced them all, I'll count on them to just automatically come up one after the other. Then I'll moderate some questions, and then we'll throw it out uh, to all of you in the audience if you haven't slit your wrist by then. So, Megan. <laughs> Well, I, I do want to start by saying that I'm very pleased that apparently Cato has selected me as one of the young people. I'm well known for being in tune with what the kids are doing these days. So uh, 
Um, that's why I brought 17 charts, because um, I know kids, no, I did not bring any charts, actually. Um, so I'm going to start off, I, was list, I, uh, I periodically listen to uh, all sorts of financial call-in shows, because if you report about uh, finance, it's actually a surprisingly good way to pick up what new innovations are happening in the banking and debt collection industry. And one of the interesting um, things that I'm hearing about a lot is a fairly new uh, emergent phenomenon, is parents who said to their kids, don't worry, we're going to pay for your college education. We're really committed to that. That's why we would like you to take out uh, $50,000 of student loans in your own name, and we'll pay them off. Um, unfortunately, when the recession hit, that hasn't worked out so well. So you have actually a surprising number of people calling in and saying, so there's all these loans in my name, and mom and dad totally promised to pay them off, but now they can't. What do I do? And uh, the people on the other end of the radio say, well, there's a $50,000 loan in your name. I think you're going to have to pay it. That is basically the position that, uh, that the, the, the kids these days are going to find themselves in when, uh, when you get to be on towards uh, my advanced age. We've made a lot of promises. We said we were going to pay for them. The generations before mine made a lot, a lot more promises and said they were going to pay for them. And uh, we haven't. In part, this is because the government really can't. The government doesn't actually have a mechanism to save, right? It, it, you really don't want the government to go, uh, go into the stock market, say, and buy up all of GM. 60% um, is really more than enough, actually. So the government can't really save in the stock market. It can't save in the debt market because, for all intents and purposes, it is the debt market. And that basically, it already owns quite a lot of real estate in prime locations like Grand, you know, the Grand Canyon. Um, and that means that when the government makes promises, the only, the only resource it has to pay it off is the future earnings of its own workers. So when you look at the debt numbers, it's pretty scary. Have any of you gone to those debt clocks online to find out what your personal share of the national debt is? Well, the national debt is 14 trillion, rapidly heading north towards 15 trillion. And uh, your share of that is approximately, give or take, $50,000 a piece. But of course, that's, that's $50,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. But it doesn't actually work out that way, right? Because like my grandmother is 94, and she's in a nursing home. And she's just not going out and generating a whole lot of income to pay the interest on our national debt. Um, Similarly, uh, young children right now not generating a lot of income. There are people who are disabled. There are people who are, you know, nearing the end of their peak earnings years. That means that actually that debt is going to be paid disproportionately by people who are younger, especially because it's growing and it doesn't actually show any signs of stopping. But the debt actually isn't the scariest part. And this was, um, you know, it. it argument that I had over and over with Republicans um, when I said, you know, we should probably not cut taxes unless we're also going to cut spending. Because to spend is to tax, right? And this is, it's, it's either taxed now or taxed later. There's not some magic way of cutting taxes. And work by the Cato Institute has, in fact, indicated that the, the theory that you could somehow cut spending and that would force Congress to, uh, to cut taxes and that would force them to cut spending has turned out to be possibly the opposite of the truth, right? It may be that cutting, ta cutting taxes, then people think, oh, it's free. We should have more of it. And so we've made an enormous number of spending promises for now that turn out to be very hard to, to cut in a recession. And some of them, uh, in my personal opinion, you wouldn't want, in, want to cut in a, a recession. I think counter-cyclical fiscal policy is, by and large, 
a good thing and it buffers out a lot of the, the problems that you otherwise see in really severe recessions. Um, but of course, the big elephant in the room, it's, it's not even like an elephant, it's like some gigantic space alien that's larger, like five times the size of the Earth, is, uh, is Social Security and Medicare. We made all of these promises to people Back in, in, I'm sure many of you are already familiar with the statistic that back when Medicaid was passed, it was projected to cost $12 billion by 1990, um, which is a tiny fraction of what it actually cost. And of course, it's growing every year. Similarly, Social Security was actually projected to be an actuarial balance right up to the point where um, Congress started handing out more generous benefits than people had paid in for. You know, we made this kind of compromise where we amassed an imaginary trust fund because, as we've talked about, the government can't save. So we basically raised taxes, and that covered the problem for a while, but now it's growing beyond um, the ability of taxes to pay for it. And the problem with these promises is not merely that they're really expensive. Right? It is perhaps undesirable, but certainly possible to cover the Social, Social Security's actuarial deficit. You could raise taxes by... Uh, or you could cut benefits to 75% of what they are. You could raise taxes. It would be a big, it would be a really actually quite stiff tax increase, but you could do it. It's not that it's somehow fiscally or economically impossible. Um, but these systems actually do more than just put a drag on the budget. They change behavior. So one of the really interesting results uh, in social science research is that social security systems in encourage people to have fewer children. Right, because why have kids if the government's going to take care of it? The problem is that on a society-wide level, we still need all the kids. You don't need three kids to make sure that there's someone around to make sure uh, to uh, take care of you in your old age. But as a society, we do. When the ratio of workers to old people falls as dramatically as it has since the social security system was put into place the system itself becomes a big fiscal drain. It also encourages people to retire early. And that's a problem not merely, right, because they then consume more resources. Social Security is actually set up so that you're supposed to consume about the same amount of, of federal dollars if you retire at 62 as you do when you retire at 65. But here's the difference. There's three years where you're not paying any taxes or where you're paying only very limited taxes on your Social Security benefits. There's three years where you're not creating productive value. Finally, Social Security systems undermine the incentive to save for your old age. If you want to subsist, right, as the ratio of workers fall, falls, if you want to subsist comfortably in your old age, we need to make the economy more productive. We need to be investing in new equipment and new ideas and new research. And that's not, that's not really what the government did with our Social Security dollars. It basically took them and funneled them back out into current consumption. And so we changed our behavior. We actually made our economy less able to carry the obligations, even as we increased the obligations that we placed on, on the millennials. So what does this mean for them? It means, first of all, that they're going to be more highly taxed. I mean, I don't think you can't just pull the rug out. Once you've made these promises... Even, even if you want to, first of all, politically, you can't pull the rug out. No matter how much we can all, we could all sit around and, and vote to, uh, to end Social Security, but we would go back out and then the mobs of seniors with, with pitchforks would descend on Capitol Hill and then they would un-demolish Social Security. So politically you can't, but also, I mean, sort of morally, 
promising someone, encouraging someone not to save for their own retirement, and then when they get to the age of 60 being like, ha, just kidding. Um, that's a problem, and I think it's a problem that, that even a you know, hard-hearted libertarian can recognize. Um, so it first of all means that the millennials are, are the younger people are going to be paying higher taxes. They're going to be working longer, and they're going to be working harder because there are just more people in the workforce. And because we've encouraged these behavior changes, because 40 years ago we decided to invest, to encourage people to save less, that means that our economy now is less productive. We can't go back and undo that. We now do have fewer children, which means that we are going to have two workers for every retiree. And even if this were in a private system, right, money still has to come from somewhere. Any system that has one person trying to retire on the work of two people is going to be a system where wages are lower or taxes are higher or in some other way, those two people are going to consume less than they otherwise would. We already didn't make the choices. There's no way to go back and reform the system so that it's more fair. And so... You're gonna, you're, we're going to have slower economic growth because we're pulling people out of the workforce. And the labor force growth is one of the major components of economic growth. It's going to be a harder time. And it's going to be a frustrating time for a lot of people, right? They're going to be angry because they're not going to have everything that their parents did. Their parents were in a really unique moment. Their parents were in a moment when the baby boom was so much larger than the generations before it and when the economy, for various reasons, was growing so much faster than the economies before it, that they were able to have this, retire this, this retirement that stretched out to, as one economist I interviewed called it, 30 years of vacation. They were able to expect a continuously rising standard of living. And I don't think that we're going to see that um, for the next generation. Not that don't get me wrong, I'm not painting some terrible dystopian future where we all go off to work in the, the Soylent Green mines um, before we come home to our dish of Soylent Green. Um, what I am predicting, though, I mean, life is still going to improve in many ways. I think that, you know, the economy, the country is still going to be getting better. But it's going to be getting better more slowly, and it's going to be getting better more unevenly. And that, I think, is, is probably the biggest psychological challenge of this of all. And that's my time, so I will sit down. Hi, thank you. Um, I guess I'm, I'm here as the, as the lefty, so I should just, you know, let's raise taxes. It's good, good enough. Um, no, um, I, I think, you know, um, I'm going to, if you look at this issue, you know, really literally, and, and you ask yourself, you know, how is it that we have so much debt right now? Um, it's almost impossible to understate the, the unique sort of personal role that George W. Bush and his administration played in this, that we, we had a moment in time when, for a variety of reasons, you know, gridlock in Congress, some budget changes in 1993 and 1997, unexpectedly good economic growth, et cetera, when the budget was in balance, we were projected to have surpluses. And it was very well understood at the time that there was a demographically driven problem with Social Security. Security and Medicare. And there was a sentiment that it would be good to run budget surpluses to pay down debt and develop some kind of cushion as we worked out politically or practically uh, whatever to do with, with Social Security or Medicare. Um, 
But then something happened, which is connected to, to what Megan said about the government not being not being able to save. Um, you know, of course, governments can save money. Uh, the, the government of Norway saves money. The government of Singapore saves money. Um, uh, the government of uh, whatever it is, United Arab Emirates. Uh, they, these tend to be small, well-governed countries. Precisely part of what they do is save money in sort of sovereign wealth funds. Um, the United States is a very big country. Um, if the United States were to save money. It would potentially be a sort of socialist juggernaut. Um, and so there was sentiment uh, from Alan Greenspan and others that said, actually, this elimination of the budget deficit is a disaster. You know, we don't want to pay down the national debt, because if we pay down the national debt, the government's going to have to save money. And that's going to mean purchasing real assets, which, you know, is, uh, is, is bad or, or we don't want it. So, uh, you know, that was that was the theory given or one of the primary theories given for cutting taxes in 2001. Um, there were some other theories at the time. There's, of course, supply side growth based theories that that Dan can tell you about. Um, and there were uh, Keynesian counter counter cyclical considerations uh, that were that were also marshaled. Um, and then we cut taxes again in, in 2003 for I, I don't even remember what the stated reason was. Um, but, you know, that was the time when Dick Cheney was famously quoted as saying, that Reagan proved deficits don't matter. Um, and, you know, one can uh, sort of debate the wisdom or, or unwisdom of those decisions uh, until the cows come home. But one of the things that did was not only create large budget deficits, but it, it destroyed any kind of consensus around spending discipline in Congress at that time. And Democrats and Republicans both had sort of no compunction about raising spending on, on wars, raising spending on Medicare, raising spending on K-12 education went up a lot during that time. And it really sort of wrecked the credibility of budget balancers within the Democratic Party, that there had been a lot of fights during the Clinton administration about balanced budgets and deficit reduction versus new spending and new investments. And what Bush basically said was, ha-ha, the left-wing guys are right, that if you try to reduce deficits, that's just a sucker's game, that Republicans just turn around and sort of use that balanced budget as a reason to cut taxes. So the whole political consensus that had existed around deficit reduction and debt reduction was really sort of blown away during that 10-year period. And that's how you have the, the lagging debt that we're faced with. Um, I'm not sure how much that actually has to do with the situation going forward, however, which is basically, as Megan describes, it's driven by the fact that some time ago we said, if an old person wants to go to the doctor, the government will pay for that. Um, and we didn't combine that with the kind of spending caps and price control systems that you see in uh, European single-payer healthcare systems. We kind of we kind of covered only about a third of the population, and we didn't do the full seizing the control of the reins of the healthcare system. We just said, all right, there's sort of this private healthcare system chugging along, and then what it costs to pay for old people's medicine, we're going to cover it. Um, and as it turns out, that promise has come to be very, very expensive. And we currently project it will become increasingly expensive in the future. Uh, you know, and that's where you get you get all these crazy lines, you know, debt until uh, until the end times and, and doom for everyone. Um, so I think, you know, the real question is, is what should we do about it? Um, and I think that particularly 
if you're a young person and you're concerned about this issue, I think there's a number of sort of general pieces of advice that I think that people with different political perspectives should be able to to sort of come together on and see the wisdom of. One is that contrary to what every practical politician will tell you, it's useful to impose as much of the cost as possible on the people who are currently old. Um, it's really politically hard because, you know, they vote, et cetera, et cetera. It makes it scary. But if you are not currently old, um, you know, by far your biggest interest is to is to avoid the kind of situation where you spend the next 40 years paying taxes to pay for Medicare benefits for old people that then you never receive uh, when you are older. Um, now, of course, for very good practical reasons, moral reasons, et cetera, we're not going to take someone who's 70 today and depending on Social Security and Medicare and just throw them out on the street. Um, but still, I mean, these programs are going to change. They're going to have to be made less generous to some extent. And there's a margin at which we decide, you know, how does that impact people that, um, when when House Republicans were putting their budget together, they were proposing sort of very draconian kind of future cuts in Medicare, but we're going to exempt everyone who's 55 and over today uh, entirely from any kind of any kind of cuts. Um, young people, you know, can probably strike a, a better balance than that, something that falls less on you and a little bit more uh, on oldsters. Um, but the general consideration, I would say, is that, you know, economic growth matters a lot. Um, thinking about the growth implications of different decisions we make is very, very important. And it's more important the longer you plan on being alive. Uh, that means that things about the size of the population are quite important. Immigration policy is very, very important. Um, we can import people into this country quite easily if we want to. Lots of people are thrilled to come here and pay payroll taxes and, and help support the American welfare state. Um, I've even heard the idea that we should auction off permission to come live in the United States. Um, Probably you could raise a lot of money doing that. It, it seems like a pretty good idea. But that also means that when you talk about decisions about taxing and spending, it's much more important to think about what are you taxing and what are you spending money on than to think about sort of crude aggregate levels. Uh, that's particularly true from, from a growth perspective that, you know, uh, sometimes the government spends money on, uh, you know, on building things or on helping people go to school, on things that you know, you can make the claim are going to pay off in the future. And people are going to debate, you know, how valuable is it? Uh, you know, how, how well is it working? Maybe it's a boondoggle. Uh, but even sort of a boondoggle, you know, it's still there. People still use it in the future. Whereas a lot of things we do finance purely, you know, current consumption, right? If we, if we borrow money to build a cruise missile and then we shoot the cruise missile to blow up someone's house in Libya, it's just gone, right? That's, that's resources, you know, off into the dust. Um, that kind of spending, you know, is very bad for growth. Uh, we do a lot of sort of nice, you know, feel-good charity stuff uh, for, for old people. Um, I think there's a strong case to be made for, the, you know, those kind of programs. But it's, again, it's not beneficial to you as a young person to subsidize the consumption of, of elderly people. It's quite important to make sure that, you know, we have an education system, that we have infrastructure, I would say on the tax side, too, it, it's a similar thing that talking about our taxes high or our taxes low is probably less significant than thinking about what are we taxing? What's the structure of the tax code? What are the implications that that has, you know, for behavior, things like that um, down the road? So, you know, that's where the focus ought to be on all of this. Um, 
And then the last thing, though, is that, you know, I don't think people should become too downbeat about this, uh, that one of the reasons why the projections have gotten so bad is that it's actually been a very long time now since there's been a concrete problem for the United States, which is caused by these deficit projections, that in the past, it's sometimes been the case that interest rates for the private sector have gotten really high and that people have thought, uh-oh, government borrowing is crowding out private sector investment. This is a real problem. It's a real drag on growth. Historically, when that's happened in the past, we have had budget deals that reduce the deficit. We've been able to bring interest rates down, uh, and that's been good. Um, I can't guarantee that we'll be able to do that in the future, but one of the main reasons we haven't done it recently is that we haven't been in that problem. Uh, Democrats complained a lot about deficits when George W. Bush was president, but it was extremely hard. It was, I think, easy to point to Bush sort of racking up deficits, doing things that were foolish. But it was hard to point at some concrete problem in the economy that was being caused by the deficits. Now that Obama's president, we sort of hear more than ever about the, the debt and the deficit. But it's harder than ever to say, OK, we're crowding something out. OK, there's an interest rate problem. There's uh, people talking about it for sort of political reasons and because uh, when the economy goes bad, people freak out about lots and lots of things. But I think there's some reason to believe that, you know, deficits are not currently a problem. And if they do become a problem in the future, that will create the kind of dynamic in which people address it in a reasonable way. We're not addressing it because it hasn't really been a huge problem. So while I'm waiting for my presentation to come up, I want to thank Cato for having me, and uh, I want to thank the other panelists. It's an honor to be on the, uh, to share a stage with them. I'm sure that there's more than one person who was surprised and then disappointed to find out I was not Dan Mitchell or that I was not Matt Iglesias. Um, there's probably nobody who's been confused that I was not uh, Megan McArdle. If they, if they were, I guess I'd, I'd be grateful. I might get more Instapundit links. Um, but it is an honor to share, share the uh, the stage with these three people. They are, uh, I've watched all of them for a number of years. There's more years for Dan than there are for the other two, but uh, Thank you. <laughs> I've watched all of them for a time and I've, I've learned a lot from them. Um, so what I thought I might do is begin with just a couple of slides to kind of show exactly what the problem is in terms of the, the what we're looking at, and then uh, offer my view of sort of three ideas that, that uh, we should keep in mind in thinking about it. So how do we get here? Well, one way to look at it, and I think actually probably the fairest way to the progressive view, is to look at spending as a share of GDP. Of course, we're going to spend more year in, year out. We're going to do this because of inflation, because of regular um, population growth, and because the economy grows. But if you look at government as a, sh as a share of GDP, then I think that's a little bit more intellectually honest. We might not necessarily expect that to grow. Well, when you look at it, of course, it does grow, and that's the overwhelming trend, is that government has been growing faster than the economy on which it depends. Um, but the other thing you notice when you look at it is it grows in fits and starts. And so you see sort of a ratchet phenomenon. If you look at uh, spending in World War II, it spiked up during this crisis, and then it went back down. But when it went back down, it never went back down to the pre-recession level or the pre-crisis level. It went back down to a level that was 70% higher. And that generally is the way it goes. So that sort of brings one's attention to the Bush-Obama spike here at the end, which is spiking up. And the question remains, will it go back down? Um, so keep that sort of rolling around in your head. 
as we look now, what's going on in the future? What is the, what is the, uh, the problem as it's projected to be? So this is the Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan uh, projections. It, I use the alternative fiscal scenario and the question debate, we might talk about why I use that. But I want to draw your attention to a couple things. So what this is, is the projection of federal spending going forward as a share of GDP. This does not include interest payments on the debt. This is just the spending on everything, on everything other than interest payments. And I'm going to superimpose on this revenue. So I want to draw your attention to four aspects of this, of this chart. Um, for one thing, you notice that, of course, revenue is down. Uh, progressives often say revenue is historically low. And that's absolutely true. Revenue is low right now. Uh, but the Congressional Budget Office is projecting that revenue will go right back up within a matter of years. And this projection is assuming that the Bush tax cuts actually stay in place, that they are not expired. Uh, what does not go back down is spending. So you see the Congressional Budget Office is basically projecting that same kind of World War II phenomenon where spending goes up, it goes back down, but it never goes back down to pre-crisis levels. But then it actually starts this long-run demographic problem where it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it eventually consumes 35% of GDP. And that big gap right there, um, that has to be financed with borrowing. Uh, another thing I want you to want, want, I want to draw the, your attention to is what kinds of things are we spending on? Well, it's not spending on the poor that is uh, bankrupting us. It's not food stamps. It's not unemployment insurance. It's not housing and urban development. It's not um, family assistance programs. It's, none of, it's not temporary assistance to uh, needy families. It's not um, earned income tax credit. It's none of those programs. It is, by and large, the middle class entitlements that I will draw on when I am in, in old age. It is Medicare and Social Security. So because of that gap in what we are spending and what we are bringing in, we have to borrow. Now, when you borrow, the unfortunate thing is you have to pay it back. And you have to pay it back usually with plus, plus interest. And when you do that, that adds to what you're spending. So in order to adjust the graph to make room for all the spending costs, you have to rescale it. And here you see that interest costs on the debt is really what adds up. And so in a few, in a few decades, hopefully within all of our life, lifetimes, what we're going to eventually be doing is spending, will spending on, on interest payments on the debt will consume half of everything we spend. So if you're a progressive, in my view, this is a very disturbing problem. If you're a libertarian, it's obviously a disturbing problem. But if you're a progressive, this is a disturbing problem because it means that we're spending money paying for past generations' debts. We're not spending money on things that you know, a progressive uh, would want to see government spend money on. Um, the other thing is, of course, is that it's just a completely unsustainable problem, is when you're accumulating that amount of, amount of deficits and that amount of debt, um, there are huge economic problems that are associated with that, and we can talk about it. But the, the general rule, the general experience of other countries that have accumulated the kind of, kinds of debts that we're about to, just in the next decade even, um, is that their growth rates tend to be cut in half. All right. So with that sort of as the background, I would suggest three principles to kind of think about this and to um, think about the best ways to move forwards. Um, so the first principle I would suggest is we ought to be thinking about policy in terms of how it's actually going to be implemented by these people in Congress and these people in the White House. We shouldn't be thinking about policy as it ought to be implemented according to Keynes or as it ought to be implemented according to the macroeconomic textbooks. So we ought to think as Madison actually suggested that we, do, that, we, that we think, imagine that there are sometimes going to be times when 
not such good people are going to be at the head of things. Maybe there will be a George W. Bush in our future. There was, there was two in our past, so maybe there'll be one in our future. <laughs> so when you think about it this way, then it, the, the Keynesian logic actually completely turns on its head. So remember, uh, macroeconomic Keynesian arguments say that we ought to spend when things are bad. But the spending ought to be temporary, it ought to be timely, and it ought to be targeted. Well, think about the timely. We know the President of the United States has now said it turns out most projects weren't as uh, shovel-ready as we hoped they were. Um, it just turns out that it's an ex extremely difficult task to figure out how to constructively spend 800-some billion dollars within a couple of months and still make it be effective. Well, think about the timely. Um, we, or think about the temporary. Well, we know, of course, from the World War II experience that spending does not go back down to its pre-recession, to its pre-crisis level. And in fact, you can see a lot of that is built in, particularly in the way that this was, that, that this stimulus was, was uh, administered. It was administered through the states, so it, it in, encourages them to build up constituencies that are in favor of the spending and then lobby for it even after, after the federal funds are gone. So, um, and the problem, this, this has a made, this, this presents a major problem for Keynesian economics because Keynesian economics does not work in the long run, according to the Keynesian economists. They always admit it, it's, it's a short-run temporary phenomenon. According to uh, Paul Krugman, hard Keynesianism requires that you run deficits when things are bad, but surpluses to pay it off when things are, things are good. Well, it turns out politicians are very, very good at listening to that first piece of advice, but they are terrible at listening to the second piece of advice. In the 85 years since Keynes wrote his general theory, we've had a deficit 85% of the time. That is absolutely not what Keynes would, rec would recommend. We ought to incorporate that political understanding, the reality of the world, in our models and in, in our recommendations for what politicians do. All right. The second proposition that I would recommend is that we think in terms of trade-offs, and we acknowledge that there are trade-offs. And Republicans and Democrats, in my view, miss these a lot of times. So it's already been mentioned, Republicans miss this all the time when they say, we need to cut spending. <clears throat> and then at the same time, we need to raise deficits by exactly the same amount, because we're not going to, I'm sorry, they say we need to cut taxes, but at the same time, we're going to raise deficits by exactly the same amount, because we're not going to cut spending. Well, show me an economic model where this makes sense over the long run. It doesn't. There's no theory that says you ought to be doing that. And yet Republicans miss that. They ignore it. They act like we can run, we can do huge tax cuts without cutting spending, and there won't be any consequences. But progressives make the same mistake, too. And I see it much more common these days. Uh, Kennedy's economic, economic advisor, Arthur Oaken, famous economist, very well respected, he talked a lot about what he called the, the big trade-off, this equity efficiency trade-off. And he cited, he recognized that if you redistribute pieces of the pie, you're going to have a smaller pie. He, he likened it to, to a, le a leaky bucket. And he cited on the side of equity. We ought to be redistributing, he said. But he was honest about the trade-off. He was honest that when you do that, there's a cost. It's interesting today, you don't hear that. You hear, we can expend on unemployment benefits and it'll be stimulatory. We can spend on um, infrastructure and, and it'll be stimul stimulative. We can do all these things where it's, it's, uh, it's spending sort of and eating your cake. Well, it's one or the other, in my view, and we ought to acknowledge that. And then finally, I don't know if you can see that, but that's a picture of Greece. Um, unsustainable promises benefit no one, least of all those who come to, come to uh, rely on them. So austerity sucks. I'm not going to claim that it's great. 
Uh, there actually is, by the way, some evidence that you can, you can minimize the blow of austerity if you do it through spending reductions rather than tax increases. But even so, it's not a great, it's not a, it's not a get rich quick scheme. Instead, it's a program to try to avoid the kind of grinding, slow, stagnating growth that we're going to see if we do accumulate the kind of debts that we're, that we're scheduled to, to accumulate. Um, but one thing's for sure is that austerity hurts a heck of a lot more if you wait to do it too late. I, you know, the, the Treasury Secretary Geithner uh, evidently said a few months ago, look, we're not Greece. Well, I guarantee you that there was some finance minister in Greece a few years ago who said, look, we're not Argentina. Nobody wants to, do, well, nobody wants to claim that they're the country that's, that, that's um, going down that path. But I, I think you know, enough countries have gone down that path. We have to start opening our eyes to the possibility. We don't even have to look beyond our country, though. Um, Meghan McArdle's uh, husband, actually, Peter Suderman, uh, likes to, uh, researches Medicaid a lot. And I, I credit him for bringing this to my attention. Um, Look at the Medicaid program in Tennessee in the 1990s. They exp greatly expanded the program. About a quarter of the state's residents were eligible for the program. Uh, a Democratic governor took over. He, there were worries about the program's size. It was growing to be a huge portion of the budget. He brought in McKinsey and Company and outside experts. They, they gave it an audit, and they said, you're in trouble. Your Medicaid program is going to consume 91% of all your revenue by 2008. You've got to do something. So overnight, 200,000 Tennesseans were cut from the Medicaid rolls. Now, in my view, you're not doing anybody a favor by telling them your program is going to be there, by luring them into a program that then, that then is going to be cut off immediately. Um, that is it, actually. I was waiting for you to say, but Deb, five more minutes. <laughs> All right, well, they all uh, pretty much kept to time. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and throw a few questions to them to start things, and uh, that'll give you all uh, 20, 25 minutes or so to think of good, succinct, uh, and timely and targeted questions uh, for our audience. Uh, and let me start by throwing uh, a question for all three of them. Uh, ideally, they'll give also timely and targeted responses. Uh, Megan, I'll start with you, but then I want the rest of the panel to answer it. Uh, reading your blog, you almost make me seem like an optimist because everything you write about Europe makes it seem like they're totally screwed and there's no way the problems are going to be solved. So the question to you and to the others is, what does Europe teach us? Well, I mean, I, I, it isn't that I, I don't think that their problems are going to be solved. I mean, as, uh, as the economist uh, Herb Stein, who is one of Nixon's presidential advisors, said, uh, if something can't go on forever, it won't. Um, and this is actually just generally true, that problems do not just keep growing forever into completely unmanageable crises. Eventually, a crisis hits, and they are solved at some point short of 80% of GDP being spent on, uh, on interest on the national debt. Um, and so, you know, it isn't that I think that Europe is going to turn into some sort of socialist nightmare where, again, everyone has to trudge off to the Soylent Green factory and come back to their IKEA-furnished home um, where everything is falling apart and the elevators don't work. Rather, I think that the Eurozone wasn't a good idea. And it wasn't a good idea for maybe a few of the reasons that uh, the current structure of, of our entitlement programs aren't a good idea. They took on promises that they weren't really prepared to back up. If you want to be part of a currency union, you need to be part of a fiscal union. 
Germany needs to be prepared to guarantee Greece's bonds. Otherwise, if, if that isn't the case, you have a real problem because a euro in, in Greece is theoretically worth the same thing as a euro in a German bank. But if Greece has to leave the euro, suddenly it's not worth the same at all. You end up probably doing what Argentina did when it broke its dollar peg, which is that it revalued all, it seized all of the bank accounts, revalued them in the new currency, and then handed them back worth substantially less than they had been. So what you get is bank runs, right? Everyone wants to move their currency out of Greek banks and into German banks as fast as possible. Um, and so it's not a stable system. It's only a stable system if Germany is willing to write checks. And I think what we're seeing is that increasingly they're not, right? And uh, frankly, I wouldn't really be either. I mean, they don't have any control over the Greeks. Um, there are reasons that you can argue that Germany should do it, um, and they're not all bad reasons. But I think that the social willingness to do it is very low because there's not a feeling, there's a feeling that, well, I open my checkbook now, and all I'm going to be doing is, is paying to cover Greek debts for the rest of my life. And that's, I think, broadly, I don't think that Europe can hold together as a currency zone. I don't think that the, the EU is going to continue what, uh, when I was writing at The Economist, we used to call ever closer union. I don't think that that's going to happen. But that doesn't mean that Europe is going to be a terrible place. Greece is beautiful. It's got lovely yogurt and, and olives. Um, I mean, no. <laughs> Well, this sounds silly, but, you know, when you talk about all of these things, right, like it always ends up you focus on the worst things that are going to happen. And these are all bad things. Living, living in Greece through austerity, through losing your job, through your income not being what you expected, through all of the promises that the Greek government made to people, because it's, and like absurd number of Greeks work for the government in civil service jobs that, that don't necessarily accomplish all that much. Um, but those were good jobs, and people counted on them. And now they don't have those jobs anymore. They don't pay as much. And all of the things that they counted on, those are all bad things. But the fact remains that like, they're still alive. They're still living in a beautiful country. They still have their, their family is still intact. All of those things haven't changed. And this will also be true of America. It will still be true that America will be a great place to live, filled with awesome Americans um, and you know fantastic consumer products, a wide array of beautiful geographic locations in which one can inexpensively vacation, um, and so forth. It's not that lives, people's lives are suddenly going to suck. It's just that the kind of fantastic vision we had where we're all zipping around in our Jetsons cars is not probably going to come to pass. It's going to be a little drearier than that. But it's not going to be the Soviet Union. It's still going to be America, and it's still going to be great. Matt and Matt? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I largely <clears throat> agree with, with Megan's take on, on what's happening in Europe, uh, which, which doesn't mean, though, that I it reminds me of I, I agreed with with a lot of what I saw in in Matt's presentation, but but that I do think it's important when you're talking about the United States to try to draw a firmer distinction between present day economic woes and the long term trajectory of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Um, if the current recession just hadn't hit, and for some reason economic growth had continued at 2007 levels out till forever, we would still have the exact same Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security problem. It, it might look a little bit different in, in magnitude, but the, the basic sort of policy question would still be there. Um, what you see happening in some European countries, I think particularly if you look at what's happening in Italy and Spain, it's just a reminder that 
even a reasonable budget practice is not going to help you if suddenly your economy stops growing because of things that have nothing to do with your budget. Um, Spain right now has enormous budget deficits, but it doesn't have deficits because programs enacted five years ago put it out of balance. It has enormous uh, deficits because the economy is in this steep hole. They have 20% unemployment. Uh, Obviously, if one every five workers in your economy isn't working, they're not paying taxes, and you're not going to be able to cover the promises you met before, which means that you want to try to avoid situations in which you get 20% unemployment. Uh, It's an interesting story about European Monetary uh, Union, the internal financial transactions there, the trade balances, uh, how they got into the situation where you have basically depression conditions in in a whole bunch of different countries. But um, it's just to say two things can happen. You know, a, a huge growth bust can give you a debt problem, but also uh, program commitments can create debt problems. In the United States, um, it makes sense to think about those questions as separate questions. You know, I I guess I don't know whether I want to be an optimist or a pessimist on this. I'm a little schizophrenic on it. Um, On the optimistic side, um, it it occurs to me that the natural rule is that market-oriented economies grow. And that's been the case basically since around the year 1800 when Thomas Malthus said economies don't grow. Um, and ever since then, he's been proven wrong, and it's been a good thing. Um, and so I do think that, the, that we're basically uh, likely to, to continue to see growth. But on the pessimistic side, um, the small changes in growth rates can have a huge effect over the long run. So, um, you know, I mentioned that there are studies that suggest when you when you get debt to GDP ratios from 30 when, once you go from 30 percent to over 90 percent, it seems that countries their growth rates are cut in half. Well, uh, that means we're going to grow 1.5 percent real terms rather than three percent in real terms. That may not seem like a lot, but um, just over the course of a generation, that's basic, that, that means that you can basically have half the opportunities, half the opportunities in terms of. Uh, uh, income, consumption, all these things. So it really accumulates. Um, the other thing on the pessimistic side, and, and Megan kind of hinted at this, is it gets to, um, are the things that we're spending money on changing our culture? And this may be something where there's, there's probably a lot of room for agreement, I think, from, on, on left and right. Um, particularly when we are spending money in a, on corporatism, when we're spending money that benefits wealthy corporations, something very interesting happens, and it reorients an entire culture so that people people are no longer spending effort trying to please consumers. They're spending effort trying to be entrepreneurial and please politicians. And so I, you know, I think about this with, with um, Europe. I, I talk to Italians who say that one of the big problems there is that there's nobody who really advocates free market um, uh, future anymore. There are just socialists who want a big state to redistribute, and there are corporatists who want a big, big state to benefit their, their companies. And in my view, that's a big problem, is if, if these changes manifest themselves in such a way that we have a culture that no longer um, values entrepreneurship, but just values people getting wealthy through the state, I think that's a big problem. Um, and I'll just add that I think that, uh, I mean, one thing that I think Matt... Uh, far far Matt, uh, far left Matt, I guess... Uh, <laughs> um, sort of underweights, though, is that um, debt and fixed obligations matter a lot um, with growth. So when you have 
fixed when you have 1.5% economic growth and you have a low debt load, that's annoying. You know, it's sad that you're not getting a 3% boost, but okay, it's it's doable. But when you have a big debt load, the US government, but also households take on have have taken on huge debt loads in the expectation that growth inflation somewhat, but a lot growth was going to kind of get us out of the hole. Right? The all through Bush's term, basically the, the, the debt-to-GDP ratio stayed basically even the entire time until the financial crisis hit because we were growing faster than our deficit was. And so we actually managed to keep the ratio of our debt-to-income really manageable. And as interest rates were falling, our, our payments actually went down, not up, under Bush, which is a little counterintuitive. When you have growth, old debt isn't a big problem. And that's also true for households, right? If you took on a big mortgage, but, and lots of people did this in the housing bust, right? Well, you know, it's, I can't really, I'm house poor now, but in five years I'll get, a, you know, I'll have gotten raises. But when growth slows and you have a big debt load, both the f- personal financial tensions and the economic tensions, you get big fissures and you get a lot of dislocation and disruption as the debt loads just be, you know, run into, you know, it was only working when everything worked perfectly. And the minute something stops working perfectly, i.e. we have a recession, which is a predictable event. I mean, economy, economies just do not keep growing consistently forever. The minute anything slows down a little bit, you're in big trouble. And so the fixed obligations we take on do matter for that. And, and in the case of Spain, they had 20% unemployment 10 years ago. I mean, they, they, they've done a lot with their economy in the last 10 years. But they, these are long, there are a lot of long-term structural issues in Europe that have been really, really exacerbated by the recession, even more than ours have. Okay, let me ask now, I don't think anyone on the panel is expecting amazing things out of this so-called super committee that was created as a result of the debt limit agreement. But succinctly, what do you want the super committee to do and what do you think the super committee will do? Um, I would like the the super committee to do something like Bull Simpson, um, something where I would personally say eliminate the corporate income tax, eliminate the special treatment of capital gains and dividends, all income tax the same way for the same person, um, and do you know dramatic simplifications, tax simplifications along those lines with lower marginal rates, but a lot fewer deductions. I would get rid of the housing um, deduction and all of the other kind of sacred cows. I would get rid of the charitable deduction. I would get rid of the tax deduction for municipal bonds, which is why Teresa Hines Carey has the same tax rate as like the person, like the, uh, you know, a newbie at Merry Maids. Um, and, uh, I, you know, radical tax simplification, radically change social security so that it is a, a, a means-tested way of preventing poverty, not a kind of attempt by the middle class to get rich by picking their own pockets. Um, I would change the structure of Medicare so that it's and, and Medicaid so that they're essentially block-granted voucher-type programs rather than, do I think this is politically feasible? No. I think this is like my little fantasy universe where, uh, where technocratic Megan gets to run everything. What I think they're going to do is they're going to like tweak around the edges because that's what politicians do. They don't do anything until they really absolutely have to, and I'm not sure we're at the moment where they really absolutely have to do something serious yet. Uh, Well, I agree 100% with what Megan said, so I'm not going to reiterate that. Uh, In the interest of saying something new, I would add one other thing I'd like to see them do, which is, um, you know, Congress is supposed to now, as part of this agreement, vote on a balanced budget amendment. Um, I would like to see them take up a balanced budget amendment that incorporates, that is, A, going to pass, 
because that's important, <laughs> and incorporates actually one of the better, one of the chief um, and probably strongest criticisms of, of a strict balanced budget requirement is that it would require deep spending cuts and or tax increases in a recession. Well, there's a way you can get around it. Um, most of the states have managed to get around this. Uh, you can do it with either rainy day funds or you can do it with um, forcing it to be balanced over a number of years. Um, or forcing the balance to change, whether you're on a whether you're in a recession or, or or whether you're growing, and it re requires you to run a surplus when you're growing. Um, there's actually a number of proposals out there that are based on this. Representative Amish has one of them. Um, I would like to see that, um, if for no other reason than I think um, it's reasonable, and I think actually Democrats, a lot of good Democrats, would would vote for it because it is so reasonable. Um, but what part of the reason I'd like to see that is I think Megan's point, and um, she referenced the Cato piece. Andy Young did this piece a few years ago where he looked at um, what is the influence of tax of tax revenue on spending, and it turns out, um, you know, there are a lot of conservatives that think that uh, politicians, if you give them more money, they'll just spend it. But there's another market-oriented economist, uh, um, James Buchanan, who says, no, if you give them the opportunity to run deficits, they'll actually spend more. And sometimes if you tax them, they'll choose less spending. Um, and Buchanan used that to advocate for some kind of a balanced budget requirement. And I think that's a, a really reasonable way. It turns out that when you actually are presented with the bill for what you're, you're consuming, you don't order um, four times more than you can eat. You actually live within your means. That seems reasonable to me. Uh, well, so the, the super committee will probably do nothing. Um, and so I think if you're concerned about this issue, th the thing to think about is priorities. Since it will probably do nothing, I think the second most likely scenario is that it'll do a bunch of things, none of which are important, you know, so that they can say, well, we had a very comprehensive approach. Um, <laughs> That's not a great outcome. I, I, I think the, the goal should be to try to get them to do one thing that is important. And I think in terms of political realism, some kind of big picture tax reform, while not politically easy, is something that there's a lot of support for among people who are on both sides, among people who are in both parties. It doesn't necessarily have a deal breaker. I can't name for you members of Congress who for sure would refuse to vote for a revenue neutral tax reform. So it seems to me that if you're on the super committee or if you're on the super committee staff and you want to work in a good faith way to something that would be a good idea, would make a difference and might conceivably pass, that tax reform should be the focus. Um, there's a lot of other questions about the structure and size of the welfare state, but the parties are just really far apart on that question. And so trying to get them to agree on it is just an invitation for a deadlock. Okay, my final question, although I'm going to make one editorial comment, not really an editorial comment, but I hope that the far left, Matt, is right and they do nothing because if they do nothing, we get a sequester. And a sequester to me would be the best outcome. But my final question before we throw it open to the uh, exciting, uh, thrilling questions that the audience has developed. Ten years from now, will America have a VAT and will that be a good thing? I, you know, I think he, here's the, the question. On the one hand, it's really interesting because you get a policy dinner and like every wonk, it's big old VAT love fest, right? And they change the name of it. They experiment with calling it a general services tax or Fred or something else that doesn't sound as scary as a VAT. 
Um, and everyone agrees we need a VAT, right? It, it, it focuses on consumption. It's more efficient. It's easier to collect. You don't have tax dodging and so forth. And then the minute you mentioned, right, it went up in front of the Senate. What was it, 97 to 0 on the, against the VAT? Um, and three people held out. It is insanely unpopular, right, in part because... I'm going to raise the prices of all the goods and services that you buy. Tough sell. Uh, also, it's regressive, um, and that's just inherently going to be a feature of any kind of consumption tax. You can twiddle with what's subject to the tax and you get it, make it less regressive. But ultimately, Warren Buffett saves a much higher percentage, percentage of his income than I do, and he's going to pay less VAT than I do um, under any conceivable uh, system. So that's the downside. But here's the thing. I mean, during the deficit debate, I had interesting exchanges with both uh, progressives and conservatives. And progressives were saying, um, well, it's, it's just simply not possible to cut spending like this. No one will go for it. Look at the poll. I've got 17 polls, and everyone loves Medicare. They love Social Security. They love – right, and it's totally true. They do. They love it. They freak out if you suggest cutting it. But they also freak out if you suggest raising taxes on anyone except Warren Buffett and some millionaire they've never met. Um, and at the same time, conservatives would, would say, well, look at this lovely graph I have where taxes, except in World War II, it's an outlier and we're tossing it out. Uh, this is the great trick of social science, right? It's toss out the outliers first and then, uh, and then move forward. Um, so if you toss out World War II, taxes have never been higher than, than basically. They average 18.5% of GDP over the long run. They, they've gone up to 20.5 under Clinton one year with a big boom in, uh, in capital gains taxes. And you know, also totally true. But this is like an empirical regularity. It's not some sort of iron law where it's just not physically possible to raise taxes. I guarantee that if, if Congress doubled taxes... Like, we would collect more taxes. It's not like the economy would suddenly collapse into a black hole and we would still get exactly 18.5% of GDP. Um, these are both really unpopular, but here's the thing. We're going to do something because that graph, the graphs you showed, those numbers don't add up. So we are either going to cut spending or we are going to raise taxes. And so, or we're probably more likely going to do both. And so in that environment, you know, when the crisis hits... We could get a VAT. I don't know. We could get a tax on people named Fred. I have no idea because at that moment, it's going to look, I don't want to say it's going to look like Greece, but it's going to look like a moment when something really bad has happened, like interest rates on our debt are going up, and we have a gigantic wad of debt to roll over because we've acquired, you know, trillions and trillions of new debt over the last three years. Um, and we, we have to roll it, most of it's short term. At that moment, we could get anything. And I don't think that you can predict because it is going to be a moment when everyone is freaking out and screaming and when we have to do something that is so extreme that at the moment, as I think we all agree, it is completely politically infeasible. So what politically infeasible thing are we going to do? I don't know. Sorry, that was really long and not succinct. Shorter answer. Um, uh, I think the way this sort of ping pong goes is uh, Republican says... Got to cut spending, got to cut spending, got to cut spending. Democrats say, I'll only do it if you raise taxes. Republicans say, I don't want to raise taxes on the job creators and, and yada, yada. It's got to be a regressive tax. How about a VAT? And then Democrats says, I can't do a regressive tax increase. How, how am I going to sell that to anyone? And then someone says, oh, you know what? A carbon tax is regressive. 
And then you come back and you do that because it has all the same political problems as a value-added tax, but it has some extra constituency that, that it doesn't have. And, I, and so I think, I think value-added tax is sort of a, an idea whose time has maybe passed because we, we've moved on to other um, like wonky ways of regressive consumption taxing. I don't have a strong opinion about you know what the political likelihood is. I, f I feel like um, I guess I'll just draw an analogy with the uh, S and P downgrade. You know, there's a lot of people who say, well, this doesn't really work because because you know this was silly. The, the country clearly can raise the revenue if you just look at it. We're not we're not like Greece. Well, it's ultimately a political judgment here. Uh, S and P did make a political judgment, and that's their job to make a political judgment. If you're going to have an, have an agency that looks at uh, Will government pay its debts? It has to be a political judgment. This, too, is sort of a political judgment. I have no idea uh, how the politics of it is going to work out. Um, I, would get, I, I would tend to side with um, Megan in thinking that you never know what is going to happen when people are up against a wall. I mean, we could get a, a, a VAT tax, but we could also easily get a um, carbon tax. Well. For the second time tonight, I hope Matt's right and we don't get a vat that it's time has passed because I'm not one of those wonks that wants it. Uh, but let's throw it out to the audience. Do, do we have someone here with a microphone? Uh, or are we just, oh, yes, here they are, the, the Vanna Whites of the Cato Institute. Um, I guess let's go uh, right here first. Hi, Clint Townsend with the Cato Institute. Um, so it's my understanding that the Federal Reserve with its policies of inflation, easy money, low interest rates, um, has actually enabled the high levels of debt and spending. And I didn't hear any of you speak to that. Um, I was hoping that some of you could speak to um, how the Federal Reserve uh, and monetary policy has um, enabled uh, this crisis. All right. Do we have low interest rates because the economy is weak or low interest rates because the Fed's giving us a lot of money? Um, well, I would say that I think that that's actually um, a sort of confusion about what the Fed does. The Fed acts to alter, um, they act to alter short-term interest rates, right? And that's basically what they have control over. How that translates into long-term interest rates is not really clear. And so the idea that like, because the Fed is going out and attempting to influence short-term interest rates, suddenly people say, I think I will pay less for mortgage bonds um, doesn't actually, there's, there's not necessarily a good economic model for it, and there's not really a, a good, as far as I'm aware anyway, a good data model for it. Um, right now, I think you can say they're absolutely, or have been influencing the price of U.S. long term, of U.S. government long-term debt. Um, but that's a pretty temporary thing where, I mean, you know, you talked, I talked to Bill Gross, who is the, runs the world's largest bond fund a couple months ago, and he said, like, the Treasury will call us up and say, we want to buy a bunch of debt, how much you want to buy, and, you, and, and what price, and then five minutes later, um, or the Treasury says, I want to sell, five minutes later, the Fed calls up and is like, okay, well, we want to buy a bunch of U.S. debt, how much can you sell it at what price? And they're essentially, at this point, like, intermediaries between these, these two actions, but that's not normally how it works. It is not normally true that the Fed is doing this kind of intensive intervention. So, you know, I don't think that there's that much impact on um, the long-term interest rates that most people pay on things. 
you know, I, I think it, it's, it's worth noting, you, you mentioned that the Fed had, was promoting policies of inflation, but, you know, the, the Cleveland Fed inflation expectations numbers were released today. It shows, I think, 15 years out, people are anticipating less than 2% on average. Um, it, we've, um, you know, inflation expectations are quite low, and that's one of the reasons that nominal interest rates uh, themselves are so low. Also, the... Um, I like losing the jargon. The the term structure of U.S. debt is pretty short, so it's not actually the case that we could inflate it away with with a great deal of ease. It's possible the Treasury could try to trick everyone and like rewrite everything as twenty year contracts, and then the Fed inflates it away. It's interesting to speculate as to what would happen if they that tried would, that. That would be a, def- a default. Though. But it's that's but it's not... it's not what they're doing. So yeah, to re- to, yes. If you change the term of debt, that's that is uh, S and P will count that as a default, and uh... yeah, it it also it, it actually gets back again to to politics a little bit. Um, so part of the reason why you see some people saying that this is hugely inflationary what they're doing, and other people say no, it's not inflationary, is because. Um, it, it depends on their actions a, f- a few years from now. So what they've done is they've bought up tons and tons of assets, and they've actually bought long-term treasuries, which is something that they don't normally do. They've also bought mortgages and uh, other things like that, also something that they don't normally do. Um, but this need not be inflationary. There's no economic reason why it needs to be inflationary. There's a political reason why it might. And that's because under the con- current conditions, it doesn't lead to inflation. But once the market changes and the, and the um the market's natural demand for money changes, then the Fed must suck out all this liquidity, and it, and it has to do it really quickly. And that is politically costly, because it does mean driving interest rates up, and it does make things, usually that makes things a little bit harder for the economy, and it tends to raise unemployment. And so the real question comes when we start growing, will the Fed have the political will to, to do that? And so that's why you see people uh, really having an honest disagreement. Some people say we have a really good institution here. It's an independent Fed for since basically 81. They've done a good job of keeping inflation in check. You have other people, Alan Meltzer, who's studied um, the Fed since 1913 and has um, written uh, you know, volumes on it. He looks at it and he's much more nervous about it. Uh, again, it just comes down to a political question of what will they do in a few years. Questions? Well, he's very anxious here, so let's uh, Thank you. let's let our favorite former IRS uh, thug uh, ask a question. <laughs> retired. Uh, okay, retired. Yeah, right. So, uh, all your sins are forgiven. Uh, <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> um, I want to ask you uh, since this this presentation was was about how this is going to the national debt, the large national debt is going to affect. Um, millenniums, whatever that exactly is, I'm not sure, but um, young people anyway. Um, I would expect that you're going to see all these college graduates who can't find jobs, and they're going to be confronted with, when they find jobs, the taxes are going to be so high on them, or the country's economics are going to be so poor, that I think that you're going to see a mass exodus of people to other countries, particularly given that more and more places, uh, English is becoming more and more the international language. And my question to you is, do you think that's right? And how do you think that will affect all this? Because if you're going to lose all these college graduates, what are you going to be left with? Um, And how much won't that further hurt the economy? All right. Well, I was planning on escaping to the Cayman Islands. Uh, Anybody have other options? 
I think it's much more likely, actually, that we would benefit from an inflow of people, uh, you know, through the exact mechanism you suggest, but that Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, et cetera, people will come here. Um, we right now, no educated ones. I mean, we right now invest tons of effort in keeping people out of the United States of America that's largely low-educated Mexican people because they could just sneak through. Um, educated European people, you know, would have to get on an airplane, but they would come if we let them. They used to. I mean, Irish people used to come and uh, overstay their visas, which is why uh, Senator Moynihan had to secure a special uh, 40,000 visa allotment for them so that some of them could become legal. I mean, this was a really huge thing in New York, the like huge Irish uh, illegal population, because there were a lot of educated Irish and their economy wasn't so good. I mean, I think, you know, um, people don't, in general, people don't move unless the economic, even when the economic pressure is terrible, right? Like people in Arizona don't like all of the illegals coming in, but most of the poor, miserable people are still in Mexico. They're not coming here. Um, they're staying home, even though they're much worse off at home than they would be doing uh, jobs here. So most people don't move. Um, Americans move more, but that's actually changing in part because with two income families, it's actually pretty hard to pick up and move two spouses. And in fact, like living in an, a country that's less developed has a lot of drawbacks. Um, I mean, if, if you ever watched House Hunters International and you see the ones that are in developing countries and you're like, wow, there's no oven in that kitchen and no stove and also no air conditioning. And it looks like it gets really hot there. Um, these, but that's like a, that's standard kind of cheap issue housing. And it's quite expensive to live like an American in a developing country. You know, like people love going abroad because they have servants, but the servants are substituting for the fact that you have no air conditioning and you can't afford a car. So I'm skeptical that you're gonna see a giant out-migration, simply because those places are changing too, right? Like Mexico now has actually a worse demographic bulge in terms of their very young children than we do. They're not having kids. And that's true all over the developing world. And so like those places are gonna be raising taxes and doing all that. And foreigners who live in their country and can't vote are going to be a very attractive source. Have you ever, have you ever paid New York City hotel tax? Think of that kind of writ very large. But, but don't you think that our taxes are going to go up? Sure. And as they go up, it's going to all this incentive that you were talking about for uh, more educated people to come here will be will not be an incentive. They will... Where, where they are will you going to go? What? There are I mean, very few so, I mean, low-tax countries that you can... Might, I mean, the, the low-tax countries are, like, great places to be a billionaire. They're not great places to be someone who's pulling in $50,000 a year as a telecommuter from, you know, from a Texan. Yeah, there, there are not... If you look at the demographics, everyone's heading in the same direction. So maybe Australia, maybe Switzerland. There are a few developed countries that How might have better long-run finances, but it's... Boy, it's a challenge. How about China? Well, I, I'm not quite so sure how good China will be in the long run. Okay, uh, did uh, oh no, right here and then over there. Are we all moving to Estonia? <laughs> it's too cold there. So all three of you seem to be. I'm Kevin Duncan from the George Washington University. All three of you seem to consider the tax reform that might come out of the super committee. Um, what sort of entitlement reform do you think should come out of Congress? during this time, and do you think it should be, you know, using shock therapy or a more gradual reform process? Well, I mean, I, I would like to see uh, 
kind of as I alluded to in the presentation, um, shock therapy doesn't, it becomes much more likely the longer we wait to deal with it. Um, so if we can make adjustments that have been talked about by a number of bipartisan commissions by a lot of people for literally decades now, um, there are a lot of tweaks that we can do at the margins right now that make a big difference. You raise the retirement age, you um, change the way you index um, cost of living adjustments. Um, some people have talked about um, means testing the programs. These kinds of things can, ha can happen right now. They don't need to um, actually impact people who are ready to retire you know, next year. You can, you can phase it in so it's not going to impact somebody who's going to retire in the next 10 years. Um, and it's, it's a much easier solution. My, my preference is always to say that whatever reduction you do in, in spending on retirement programs, you should try to take as much of it possible out of Medicare and not cut Social Security. That there's a certain like political logic to, well, you have two programs. If you're going to do cuts, you should sort of balance the cuts be between the two. Um, but whatever number of dollars you take out of Medicare, uh, some of the incidence of that is going to be borne by health care providers, and it's going to have some impact on system healthcare utilization and costs for everyone sort of across the system. People who want to spend extra money on health care can take their Social Security money and spend it on that if they have some particular love of spending time in the hospital. Um, so that's sort of my slightly distinctive take on that. I'd agree with that if for no other reason that Medicare is a much bigger problem than Social Security. I think one big uh, elephant in the room, though, is that the big question with Medicare isn't so it's not just like we, we spend less on it. It's it's the grinding, terrible, awful discussion that we had for the last two years where there's such a wide disagreement about what's the right way to rein in costs. And they're very it's the two sides are really, really different on this one. Well, one, one way to look at it, too, is that it's true that Medicare, you know, you can distribute the pain more widely, but that also means that there's a much larger group of people who are going to lobby to keep the pain from being distributed at all. Um, and so, I mean, you think it's bad when you have seniors against Social Security. Now you have seniors like your really photogenic, awesome doctor running ads and nurses and home health care aides, and all of those people are going to be arrayed against it. So in some ways, it's a lot harder to reform. Great. Do we have a question toward the back of the audience up there? Hi, I'm Mike Kennedy. I'm a Coke associate. Um, my question is, um, we've talked a lot about bad countries um, that are in a similar situation to the United States. Are there examples that you know of of countries in similar situations who the United States should be trying to emulate? Well, um, so there is actually a pretty good literature on this. Um, turns out we're not the first country to deal with a situation like this. Um, 107 other examples from 40 similarly situated countries over the last 30 years have been identified of countries that have attempted to rein in debt and deficits. Um, and it's been studied. Um, I'd, I'd recommend there's um, Harvard's Alberto Alessina and Sylvia Ardania have a nice study on it, but they're not the only ones. There's about a dozen peer-reviewed studies that have looked at those examples. The bad news is that most of the time it doesn't work. About 84% of the time attempts to rein in the deficit or debt actually don't work. In those instances where it does work, um, there's a remarkable difference. Um, those instances where debt has been brought down, it was mostly by and large through spending reductions and, and um, not through major tax increases. 
Um, those instances where um, it failed to work, they tried just the opposite. And you could look, uh, I'd recommend, um, you know, you can go to David Romer's macroeconomics textbook. Right in there, he's got some of the examples. You can look at, uh, I think, at Finland um, in the 1980s. You can then look at Ireland in the early 90s. Um, so there are, there are good examples of this. It's not, there's also another discussion about whether it'll be painful. That discussion is much more empirically uh, vague. There are a lot of, there's some people who say that you can cut and it'll actually be followed by growth. Um, and other people who say, no, there were other things that were going on at that time. That's more, more of a question. But it's actually um, not that, in my reading of the literature, is it's not a, a particularly tricky question. The, the best, you know, the most likely way to rein in debt and deficits seems to be through spending reductions. Well, uh, let me add a slightly different spin on that, though, because there, in the most recent rounds of discussions, there hasn't actually been a debate between people saying it should be mostly cuts and people who say it should be mostly tax increases. The debate's been between people who say it should be mostly cuts and people who say it should be all cuts. Um, and at least as a political matter. I mean, I mean, I think clearly, conceptually, you could do a 100% cuts uh, motion. But if for no other reason than some kind of symbolic fairness and building of political consensus, you have to have, I think, some meaningful tax increases in a package, simply because spending cuts, you know, they're, they're unpopular, they cause a lot of pain to you know, real people in their real lives, and to just kind of insist on doing it all that way is not economically necessary or politically productive. Um, but I also do think that the the much disputed sort of growth literature around this, you know, is relevant. Um, and probably the most relevant picture for, for the United States is Canada in the, in the 90s, where they had a lot of debt reduction. It was largely on the spending side, but it was associated with really big interest rate cuts, currency devaluation, big increases in net exports. And so their economy stayed healthy and their labor market market stayed healthy, so on and so forth. It's not really obvious to me how you carry that over to the United States, which is a very different kind of situation. But Canada is a, a similar society. Uh, the 90s were not that long ago. It points to something you could imagine happening, but you have to think about what would the analog be. Yeah, it's hard to... My father has suggested that we import uh, Paul Martin, uh, the, who was the finance minister uh, and is now without a job, um, having lost to Stephen Harper uh, in, uh, in a couple of years ago. Um, but as Matt says, the problem is that like they did this in the context of their extremely large neighbor, both doing a big trade deal with them and then undergoing a huge internet boom and in which they, into which they got to export. And, um, the Mexican economy has been surprisingly strong, but I don't think that we're going to be able to repeat the trick, um, cause there's a lot fewer of them than there are of us. Um, and too few Americans speak Spanish. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really difficult to look at countries that have done this. I will say that um, in support of, of, of far left Matt's point, when you talk to the British government people about what they're doing with austerity right now, because this has been really difficult, right? I mean, um, whether or not you think the riots are a direct outgrowth of that, it has certainly been controversial, and there have been a lot of de demonstrations. And what they say is that they have really, really strong support on the street, that the average person, you know, they thought they were going to do this, and because their election cycle is five years, and sort of have two years of just sheer misery where everyone hated them, 
And then they were going to, it was going to be over and they would be able to run, you know, later when, when things weren't so bad. But in fact, they've kept support, according to them, the entire time. But the reason that they've kept support is there's a 50% tax rate on those top earners. And that that was part of it. That was part of buying the support for radically changing, in a lot of ways, the way the welfare state worked. And I don't know how many of you saw the, uh, the, the like, sad heart-rending articles in The Guardian about people being forced to leave central London uh, housing, public housing, um, and how this was like basically totally undermining everything that Britain had ever stood for and probably forcing these people to go on to a life of homelessness and misery. Um, that buying support for that was part of saying, like, look, we're also taking it from the rich. It's not just that we're doing all of this at the bottom. And I think that Matt is right that politically, whatever libertarians would like to do, we're not going to do shock therapy because you can't, right? We're not going to do Medicare shock therapy where we just start throwing people off of it. Whether or not you think that's a good policy, it's not feasible. Um, and similarly, I think tax increases are going to have to be part of it. Partly because the Democrats aren't going to come to the table, and you do need their support to pass it, and partly because if the Democrats did come to the table, the public would reject it. All right. Let's, uh, we're going to take two final questions here, uh, this gentleman here and that gentleman there, both together. Uh, and then, uh, well, actually, it was going to be him, but we'll let you sneak in, too. But let's get all the questions together, uh, then have all the answers together, along with closing statements, because, of course, we all want to go upstairs uh, for the reception. I'm going to throw in another editorial comment here. In uh, Cameron's first year in the U.K., his harsh austerity, government spending grew 4.2 percent a year. So if you want to short a country, short the U.K., because their spending cuts are all phony and the tax increases are real. But let's get question quick, question quick, and then you still had your hand up. Question quick. Okay. You know, I, um, we really haven't, uh, haven't addressed um, Mr. Mitchell's uh, question about um, I, the, the sequester. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by the sequester, but I, I do know this idea of political reality and tax increases, I don't think they're going to happen. I don't think so. And, and, and this committee that's been set up, I don't think it's been set up to do a lot. And therefore, essentially what you've got is the automatic, where 50% of the reductions will come from defense and 50% will come from social, and that's a compromise. Okay, can you pass it just up to that guy right there and get his question, then we'll get his question and wrap everything up. Okay, basically, it's uh, just a short question because um, I kind of missed the natural kind, um, rights argument because you seem to be, the consensus seems to be that somehow we have to pay this, but uh, what is the argument that I have to pay for a promise I've never pledged in the first place? Well, where are you from, from your accent? Austria, sorry. So why would you pay? Are you, are you here? Think, in why should I pay for a pension now or in the future? Oh, because you're a foreigner, damn it. <laughs> okay. And then final question. I don't know. It's okay, John. All right. Well, earlier you spoke of uh, in regards to cutting uh, taxes, you should also cut spending, and I, I agree with that. But um, I guess part of the argument that I've heard in the past is when you cut uh, when you cut taxes, you increase growth, and that increases revenues, and this is a good thing, and that'll be good for the economy. So how true is that? I, I've heard it was true under Kennedy and Reagan and Bush. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh, and now we'll have uh, all three of them answer all three questions and also make their closing statements and do that all in a relatively brief period of time. 
Uh, this may be a, a Mitchell on Mitchell disagreement here. We'll see. But I, I think that that's been an unfortunate um, exaggeration. So the idea that you can cut taxes and actually get more revenue, um, it's theoretically true. Um, it may be true for some taxes at very high rates, but uh, there's very little, in my view, evidence that at our current tax rates right now that we could cut tax rates and see more revenue. Uh, in my view, in a lot of ways, the Republican Party is, I think, misguided in its laser-like focus on taxes. What they ought to be focusing on is spending. To spend is to tax, whether you're spending today or you're spending tomorrow, tomorrow as, as Megan said. Um, and that's really where we need to be concentrating is um, if I were a Republican on this committee, I would be d demanding deep long-term cuts in the programs that are the, at the heart of the problem. And I'd be willing to say, look, we're, um, maybe we should countenance some net revenue increases, probably not tax rate increases, but revenue increases by lowering, by, by getting rid of loopholes, um, if for no other reason than that, um, why draw a hard line on taxes but not deficits? They're both bad for the economy. They, why, why substitute one bad for another? The main, th the main goal should be to lower spending, which is the cause of both. Um, I will concur with uh, Mitchell Left or Mitchell Prime um, that uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that at the current tax rates that we enjoy that we could raise revenue. There are, uh, I mean, I, it's almost an empirical, it, ha it has to be true, right? If tax rates are 100% and you cut them, you will collect more revenue because no one works if their tax rate is 100%. Um, but below those levels, I I at the levels we're now at, I don't think that cutting taxes is going to raise actual revenue. It may raise growth. You may argue it makes people better off. But as Mitchell Prime says, uh, you need to focus on the spending because you, you need to – the real issue is if the government is consuming 30 percent of GDP, it's consuming 30 percent of GDP. Um, the incentive effects of lowering marginal tax rates are complicated. There's the incentive effect where people want to work more because they get to keep more of the money. There's also the incentive effect of, well, you just cut my taxes, and so the amount of work that I was doing makes me richer, makes me – maybe I'll cut back to where I was earning the same amount of money before and working less. You can The effects can go both ways, and it's sort of empirically complicated, but I don't think that the evidence shows that at where the U.S. is – that, that the incentive effect um, causes revenues to actually rise. Um, on the question of the moral, you know, I, I think there's a couple of, of issues there. I mean, the first is we live in a representative democracy, and I confess to believing that that is, in fact, as Winston Churchill said, the worst system except for all the others. Um, and the fact is that in a representative democracy, you're going to be responsible for those pensions that we promised. Whether or not you think that you feel like you promised them, et cetera, you are riding on the highways built by people earlier than you. You are, you are engaging in a transgenerational, you know, multi-century project. You don't really have much of a choice about it. Um, you're going to have to pick a project. You can go to another country that perhaps doesn't have those pensions. I would fully support your right to do so. Um, but living within America, the fact is the seniors vote. They're not going to let you take away their pension. Um, and so it, I, I can go out and try to argue that with them. But here's the thing. like When I'm going to an 80-year-old guy and saying, morally, I have no obligation to make sure that you eat, and he says, right, but I have to eat, he's going to go to the ballot box and vote with his dinner. So I, you know, I, I just think I'm not sure... 
the moral question is that interesting once you accept the premise of living in a democracy. If you have some other system in mind, I think that has other issues. Um, and uh, I pass it on to, uh, to far left Matt. Sure. Um, I, I want to say I, I agree. I mean, letting the sequester trigger mechanism go in is an okay option. I, I that's one of the reasons why I think deadlock is likely is that it's pretty good from all different points of view, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, taxes. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I think you could possibly raise revenue by inc- decreasing cigarette taxes at this point. Um, is is in one New York of, City definitely? I mean, is one of the only commodities that are are, are very clearly being uh, uh, sort of passed the threat. Threshold um, obligation. I don't know. It's it's a practical problem. Um, but I, as I've been saying, I, I think the United States should try harder to take advantage of the fact that a, a large number of people, uh, particularly in Western Europe, um, might prefer to come here and pay somewhat lower taxes for a, a less generous welfare state. Um, you know, exit. It's uh, it's worth something in the world. Um, in the spirit of a final statement, though, I would note there's sort of not that much disagreement up here, and the reason there has hasn't been that much disagreement, I think, is that we haven't talked about the specifics of how you might change Medicare. That there's a, but I mean, but I mean, I think there's there's a lot of political disagreements about things in the world, but that among sort of people oriented toward policy questions, there's a lot of consensus about quantities and a lot of disagreements about how. All right. Well, I guess uh, we're going to count all those things as final statements. And the spirit of can't we all get along, I'll say that I agree with them on what they're saying on Laffer Curve. It is extremely rare that you get 100% plus revenue feedbacks. Uh, my problem on this issue has always been that the Joint Committee on Taxation assumes zero revenue feedback. doesn't matter how good or how bad a tax change is. But no, tax cuts almost never pay for themselves uh, at all. So on that uh, sort of bipartisan group hug type uh, uh, statement, let's all go upstairs and have some fun. Thank you.